Welcome to the Global Investment Leaders Podcast. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. I'm pleased to be joined today by Stephanie Cohn-Rupp, CEO of Veris Wealth Partners. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. What I really want to start with is your background, because while you have, over the last 20 years, built a long and deep focus in ESG and impact, everybody has to start somewhere. Tell us a little bit about how you got started. Well, so I have an idiosyncratic background. I really came to the impact world and wealth management through international economic development. So most of my career initially was working in places where very few people wanted to work back then, which is, you know, the Central Asian Republic, you know, Ghana. I worked a lot in Russia, Far East, et cetera, focusing on microfinance and economic development. But this morphed slowly into focusing on businesses that alleviate poverty. So not just looking at microfinance as a vector for women's empowerment and economic development, but then realizing that the businesses that they funded themselves can be catalytic in changing the lives of women, children, men, and and poor populations, including indigenous populations. And then the more I worked through ultra high net worth donors and investors, the more I realized that this interplay of business and social good was really the future of investing. This was way before impact investing became a mainstream kind of movement. It was a very different psychology in terms of looking at your money differently instead of just thinking of on one end, I invest and I try to maximize my return. And on the other end, I give. And that's where I have social impact. The idea is to really blend the two, regardless of tax status. Every dollar that you have can really have impact. By working with ultra high net worth individuals, I then moved slowly into wealth management, which was, I think, the really the right home for me. Yes, I, I think so. Now, having spent some time with you and your partners recently, before Varus, you worked for Threshold, which was the George Russell family office. And then Threshold was acquired by Tiedemann. And I think that provided some change either in direction or with a new owner and a new agenda. You ultimately found yourself at Varus. How did that happen? So first, I joined Threshold Group, which was a phenomenal multi-office outfit, but very much run like a family business. And so not profitable or just barely break even. And then when we got acquired by Tiedemann, I thought the opportunity there was really to try to infect the host who see the, the psychology that I had at the time to try to to help Tiedemann really develop its impact platform and ESG offering when there were so many clients interested. And so for me, it was really about moving assets from non-impact to impact. There's a whole slew of, of reasons why eventually I realized a hybrid model that is impact and non-impact is quite hard to manage, especially if you're a purist as I am. And I, I admit fully to my orthodoxy. And when I sought out Veris, tried to join Veris for years, actually, for over, I talked about it with our former CEO, Patricia Farah-Rivas, for about eight years, looking back on the emails, the first kind of contact that we had, because there is a significant opportunity for an impact-only RIA in the space, a pure play that stays independent in an ocean of M&A and consolidation, and for us to scale while being authentic, not only in our investment platform, but also in how we operate. So how we select vendors, how we apply 
diversity, equity, and inclusion measures to ourselves or environmental standards, et cetera. And so being a holistic impact firm was really the right home for me professionally, but I also think is a very important addition and kind of beacon in in the RIA space. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Varus and how you measure yourself and how you think of yourself among other competitors and those that are doing something similar. But I first want to go back a little bit in time because you said something earlier that really touched on a nerve for me, which I think is worth a comment from you. And that is 35, 30, even 25 years ago, this was a very different landscape. You had Joyce Abusha and Amy Domini, who I'm sure you know, when Amy Domini created the Social 400 Fund, which over 30 plus years has still outperformed the S&P. You had various other product or fund players, Calvert, Paxworld, and others, but not so much a wealth management advisory client-focused world. It was much more a product and strategy-driven, and there were manufacturers of product who said, we can combine some specific elements of ESG and impact investing in what we do. And you know, where was that going to go? Was that going to take off and become more broad? And I think I was, for one, I was very surprised and that those early product providers did not lead to mainstream investing themes for ESG and impact. In fact, we went a long time, several decades before I would have said maybe over the last five to 10 years, this whole topic and the notion of running entire investment programs with an ESG and impact centricity really took over. Do you agree with that? One. And two, what do you think led after that long, long period of niche and product folk now to mainstream and just the incredibly broad and dominant theme, if not the most dominant investment theme today? Those are two very good questions. Uh, by the way, I am reading, I, I know Amy Domini, I'm actually reading her book, Thoughts, which I recommend on People, Planet, and Profit, and I'll be interviewing her soon. So I actually agree with your assessment. I think the SRI ESG world started, honestly, through two different routes that then finally met. On the public equity side, you had Amy Domini and you had other players as well, like Trillium, who were really trying to move the needle on trying to create product where there was negative screening, positive tilting, and then ESG integration. And those people were kind of at the, the trailblazers looking at what you could do in public markets. And then simultaneously, you had the ultra high net worth individuals really building up an entire movement. And this includes very large foundations like Rockefeller and Ford and so on. By investing their, their grant dollars through PRIs, program-related investments, into private equity, venture, private debt. That include microfinance, that include a whole slew of investments. I came up through that channel, not the SRI channel. And then that those large, large investors moved from PRIs to MRIs, where they literally started investing their endowments, so mission-related investments, into these private funds, et cetera. What was missing was honestly the orchestra head, the wealth manager, the portfolio manager to really mix, you know, in all asset classes, those themes around ESG and impact and even go further with place-based investing and, and, you know, much more deep kind of thematic investing and shareholder engagement on the, on the public side, but that would be teasing out the same themes as on the private side. And I saw that very closely because when I was CEO of Tonic, which is a global network of impact investors, 
all I heard all day from my members was how disappointed they were with their wealth manager. Whether it was City Gold, Goldman Sachs, or whomever, big or small, because they did not have the products on their platform. And the wealth managers were uneducated, to be honest, and were scared. That also had to do with the dynamics, which was very typical for trustees out of concern for their fiduciary duty to actually step back and say, no, we're not touching ESG. We're not touching these impact funds for fear of taking you know, the, the haircut, so to speak. Anyway, so, so the wealth managers, I think about you know, 10 years ago, started waking up to the fact that you, you had to understand these themes and these issues to meet the, the clients where they're at. And it was definitely client-led. Yeah. Well, but let me just interrupt you there and say, I think part of it as well, if you would agree, was that some of the organizations that came together over the last decade or somewhat more weren't there 30 years ago. So the U.S. Sustainable Investment Forum, the Impact Assets 50 Review Group, being a certified B Corp, not all of these designations or conduits were available and they weren't. So there wasn't the community. There were product folk, there were investment strategy people. But as you said, as there was more energy came behind the themes for allocators and it broadened out beyond community redevelopment or faith-based investing. Stephanie, one of the things that occurs to me is that there's an absolute flood of capital globally coming into ESG and impact mandates and allocation. How do you think about that? Is that a good thing? Does it present certain challenges or opportunities? This is a topic I was just discussing with a client of ours who is one of the kind of trailblazers in the organic movement, who was so angry when the organic certifications became mainstream and every product, every Tetra Pak had a little green leaf on it, et cetera. It's a positive in the sense that there is now public consciousness around issues pertaining to the environment and to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and generally trying to to do the right thing with financial assets. However, the scale of it doesn't matter if this is not regulated and, and authentic. And so this is where the Europeans are ahead of us. The EU has now set forth definitions as to what constitutes an ESG fund. There's some standards in terms of metrics, et cetera. And as a result of that regulation, ESG funds in Europe, the AUM has decreased and literally by billions, which means that there were a lot of products that said they were fossil fuel free and it's false advertisement. And had all sorts of extractives and utilities and you know high carbon emission per dollar of revenue, et cetera. So I think the fact that it's this sector is scaling is 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 a good thing, but with it, we need regulation and truth and advertising. And for that, we need to have standards. There's no way around it. Are they coming? Too long in coming? They are coming. And the reason I know this is because I'm on the board of US CIF. U.S. Sustainable Investment Forum, which is very much focused on policy and regulation for the ESG sector and and who are taking a lot of meetings on the Hill, including working uh, even with with the Biden administration. So I think those regulations are coming. What I have heard, though, is that sustainable investment movement is really watching what's happening in Europe first. And it's going to take a year or two to 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 see the the full effect of those regulations around transparency, metrics, reporting, et cetera. So it's not, it's not for this year, but it's or 2022, but it's in the works. 
Now today, as you said, you have a broad-based asset allocation framework at Veris. You invest in asset classes, public and private, and you have several themes, which I think are critical to your brand and what you want to do in the world that describes both your vision and how you execute your mission. Talk to me a little bit about the themes that drive Veris. So we have two broad buckets, and this is very traditional in this space. We have social and then environmental. And within the environmental theme, we really focus on regenerative agriculture, as well as generally climate solutions, you know, interventions around decarbonization or carbon sequestration, et cetera. Uh, and we also really are interested in this in the kind of regenerative economy generally, not, not just in agriculture. And then on the social side, it's really about community development. And then the big theme for us where we're really focusing on is on equity, diversity, and inclusion, which we call racial and gender equity. And so Veris was a trailblazer in gender lens investing, trying to build an entire investment platform focused on women and girls, either in women leaders or in companies that benefit women and girls. And then we expanded that to really include racial and gender equity. Well, as you know, the investment management and wealth management industries also suffer from a huge lack of representation of women who are senior leaders or chief executives. We have actually had the good fortune of partnering with a few of them, Judy O'Connell at Champlain, Ali McDonald and Gita Ayer at Boston Common, who you know. But I'm curious whether or not you think, as you've come up through this industry and, and seen some of the other firms and, and known other women throughout your career, what is keeping more women from ascending to more senior roles, whether at an ESG impact firm, but just in general in the asset and wealth management business? Do you see progress? So that's a really good, good question. I do see progress. And I see progress because generally diversity, equity, and inclusion has become such a predominant theme. And asset owners, including uh, you know large sovereign wealth funds and, and so on, are asking whether it's asset managers or, or wealth managers or portfolio managers to really think about not just having the token single woman on the board, but having 30% of a board or 30% of the executive team be diverse, BIPOC, or, or women. But I think this really boils down to unconscious bias. Unconscious bias, not only in men, but in women themselves. I mean, this, this is extremely well documented. And I remember at Harvard at the Kennedy School, I had a, a professor who was just focusing on the fact that uh, women don't ask. So we clip our own wings. You know, for women to apply for a job, they have to have usually 90% of all the skill sets required, or even just 100% before they even put their toe in the water. Whereas men, if they have 60% on average, this is based on this research, 60% of the you know qualifications, boom, they'll you know, they'll apply and, and beat their chest and say, why not me? So a lot of it is about, you know, I'd say building up the confidence of women. And there are many, many efforts from leanin.org to, you know, chief.com, which is only for women, et cetera. So there's a lot of efforts there, but I think it's because we are to some extent biased in putting a bar too high for ourselves. And then the last thing I'll say is there's a lot of research also on the power of networks and mentorship and men mentor other men. We need more women to mentor other women. So it, that is a key part of, of uh, kind of career ascension, just from what I've seen around me. You need somebody to have your back, <laughs> basically. I agree. And that has certainly happened in the firms that we partner with who are women led and have 
significant representation throughout the ranks. But the irony of what you just said a minute ago is that, of course, for a number of women, if they are too forthright or too strong-willed, then they're regarded as arrogant or brusque or difficult to deal with, which as we've invested in and worked with hundreds of firms over the last 30 years, I've noticed that as well. So there's a delicate line there. Yeah, no, it's, and it's, that's a very, very good point. It's a catch 22. Like we're between a rock and a hard place. If you're tough as a guy, you're seen as a strong leader and you can hold your ground, et cetera. But women are expected to be likable and gentle and, and so on. And that sometimes goes against being in a leadership position where you've got to make tough decisions and you're not going to be popular and that's okay. So yeah, no, it's a fine line. I can tell you that the women who we have backed as CEO or leaders in their businesses have struck a wonderful balance at being very firm, but also being admired. Let's move on to your investment management platform and some of the firms that you have partnered with. Just give us a sense of what some of your key criteria are for evaluating and hiring an investment management firm, whether in public or private securities, but across the landscape. What are some of the characteristics that make for a good fit for you and an investment management firm that you employ? So our, our DDQs, our due diligence questionnaires, are actually very similar on the financial side and risk assessment or operational due diligence as any other, I'd say, manager of managers. In addition to that, we have a full-blown diversity, equity, and inclusion questionnaire an impact questionnaire, depending on what the theme is or the mission is of the manager. We would not consider a manager who does not consider themselves as ESG or impact. So there's first a self-selection of the managers themselves. Yeah, let me stop you there, Stephanie, because I think today from where we sit that it's hard to find a firm that hasn't employed some greenwashing or other criteria to designate themselves as ESG or impact acceptable. So go a little deeper there. Yeah, no. So that's a that's a, a prima facie, I'd say, uh, criteria. Of course, then it's about due diligencing the impact piece as much as the, the the business and financial piece and the regulatory and compliance piece as well. And on the on the impact side, it's not just about self declaration. It's seeing you know the recruiting practices, the makeup of the team, the interventions, and of course the impact reporting. So if a manager does not report on impact, that is a huge red flag. You can't manage what you don't measure. And so it's very important for us, for each of the managers to have as detailed as possible uh, impact metrics. So some firms are very stringent about what approach to use. So for example, some use the IMM, the Impact Management Measurement and Management System. Others use just the UN Sustainable Development Goals as themes. We're not heavy-handed with our managers in saying you must abide by this system. That would be too onerous for any, in our view, for every manager to deal with a myriad of investors who are requ requesting specific impact reporting. But generally, they need to have some form of quarterly and annual impact report to verify what they state as their mission. And any other criteria going away from ESG and impact, size, employee ownership, other specific aspects of the firm. I mean, there's some very big and successful product firms in the ESG world like Impacts and Parnassus and Generation, but you have also backed a number of much smaller firms. Do you have any other specific criteria to share? Well, so what we do, which is a little unusual, is we do have what some call catalytic investments or impact first 
which means that, you know, it could be firms that our clients are very interested in, like community loan funds that only focus on indigenous populations. The return in our view, is below risk-adjusted returns. So a 2% loan for whatever, 18-month or two-year note. But we're willing to go with those kinds of managers who are doing incredible work, have a very long track record, and are very catalytic in their own communities. I mean, that is a criteria that we, for a lot of, of players, including those I've worked for, you know, these smaller firms are, are a non-starter for their investment platform. And we're willing to, to engage with those kinds of players. The other thing we have done is we've often been the first money in. So for example, a first-time fund manager whose thesis is very unusual, such as completely focused on, you know, fund the fund structure called Illumin, only focused on unconscious racial bias that in their theory is basically hurting investment returns of the underlying funds. And so all they do is, is do training around unconscious bias of their funds, fund managers, so that the GPs become better at assessing the underlying assets and, and investees. So unconscious bias is a, is a cost to a business, actually, is the, way, is the way they frame it. And we were the first money into that fund when a lot of people thought that's bizarre. Why, why would you, you know, it's a psychological investment more than anything else, but it, 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 it's actually performing very well. Let's move on to Veris today. And I think 2021 has been a very good growth year for you. And the firm has really made some important strides, both in numbers of families that you have taken on and building out both the partner and employee base. Give us a sense of what key business themes are here in the near term. However you would phrase it with regard to growth, profitability, functionality, you know, the kinds of things that when you wake up at night thinking about the business, what are those issues that drive you now? The big change, and this is really, you know, me being grateful to Rosemont, is since our independence and yet our succession planning is so core to our success, finding a firm that has a permanent capital approach, so not the traditional private equity model. But also who's expert in the RIA space for us was was you know like finding a needle in the in a haystack where every every other investor we spoke to either didn't value our impact kind of chops as much as as Rosemont did, but also didn't have the long-term view and, a, and an approach to investing, including reinvesting, which really sets us up for success and, and, and meets very well the, the RIA business model, which is you know not to necessarily have an exit in five or seven years. So that's been an absolute godsend. And as a, as a result, allows us to double down on our impact, our authenticity, and our growth uh, without thinking of, of consolidation, selling, et cetera. So it's really enabled us to, to stand our ground. And as I said earlier, as one of the impact-only wealth management firms. So I think that your model, I, I know you didn't create it to, to support only the impact industry, but you are. Uh, that's, that this is very much a a model that fits with the growth of, of impact in ESG. In terms of our themes, I mean, for us, for this year and next, it's really about modernization, upping our game in terms of operations and systems. We really want to make sure that we're poised for scale. So that's that's a core priority. And then to really keep on innovating on the research platform, because that is, that is the magic. That Those are the ingredients that we place in our clients' portfolios and help them make a difference in the world. And we need to make sure that 
we have the best in class managers who are truly making a difference. So it's not a do no harm policy, but their interventions are, are, are meaningful from a social or environmental standpoint. So I'd say those are the two priorities. Uh, you make a really good point about inflection and where you sit in the life cycle of Bear still has a long way to go. And the constant push-pull of reinvestment versus profit-taking. And even though now you've generated good EBITDA, you know, we laughed the other day when we talked about what we'd rather have. We'd rather have a four or five billion dollar firm with 30-ish percent margins or a two and a half billion dollar firm with 37% margins. And there's no decision. We absolutely support that. And that's, you know, part of it is also, and I don't know that everybody realizes this when outside investors are looking at the economics and the margin of a business. Part of it is buffer. Now, part of it is thinking about, well, we could have some market dislocation coming up. We're ripe for some serious pullback in the equity markets for many experts' opinion. And we want to make sure that that pullback, and obviously nothing's foolproof, but to be able to have some buffer, to be able to have some cushion, and to not to all of a sudden be near break even and be debating, uh-oh, let's take a harder look at our compensation architecture. Let's think about who we might have to let go. Let's think about all the investments that we intended to make, and now we won't make any of them. So there's clearly kind of a business rationale for having reasonably good margins, but not excessive. We completely agree, especially in this volatile environment with new variants, you know, hitting the world economy and and all sorts of external shocks and inflationary environment, et cetera. I mean, resiliency is really key here. And we don't know what black swan is going to hit us. So it's it's very important to have that that buffer completely. The other thing I'd like to talk about is your employee and partner base, which we think is very strong top to bottom. I think you've got 10 partners among 24 total employees. Give us a sense of what you are looking for when you hire somebody at Veris. And then secondly, to become a partner, what are those characteristics? Wonderful. Well, so we have a very special culture at Veris. And forgive me for being a nerd, but I will use my uh, background in political science and philosophy. I'm very driven by, uh, at the time when I studied Kantian ethics. And so we really, when, when I saw Veris, I was like, wow, this is an embodiment of that approach, which is really that every individual is an end in themselves and not a means only. And we we are extremely focused on the well-being of our employees, ensuring that people are congenial with one another. There's a no-asshole policy, that's for sure. So a NOPA, as I've heard in other, other companies, and we definitely want to ensure that people are mission aligned. So if you come to Veris, you have to believe in our mission. It's a very difficult environment. Otherwise, if you're a climate denier, for example, I mean, you would not be a fit uh, at Veris for sure. So it's not just about the skill sets and education, et cetera. It's, it's really about the, the belief in the mission and our ethos. And of course, we're trying, much like our managers, we're trying to diversify our employee base and our ownership base. We already are majority women owned, et cetera, but we have a long way to go to be fully diversified. By the way, when we think of diversity, we also think of disabilities. So we, we have a partner and chief compliance officer who happens to be blind. You know, We don't stop at, at uh, difficulty or technical issues that we think we can completely overcome, and we do. In terms of partnership, the goal would be to democratize partnership so that we really have an employee-owned company. At this stage, it's not entirely uh, employee-owned. We still have a long way to go. 
but the for now the partner profile is really someone who is devoted long term to impact investing to the business of Vera. So this is not a transactional kind of commitment for a few years, et cetera. This has to be a long-term commitment to help build the firm as you know, we work with multi-generational clients. We really need partners with the long-term view. And what we've found as we got into this subject with you is that you've actually been very thoughtful about internal equity transition and the buy-sell mechanics, because as we've seen for my whole career, if a firm that is becoming more successful and growing and the economics are improving rapidly, if you don't move equity soon enough and sizably enough in those firms, you won't be able to do it later on. And as you know, keeping a firm able to remain majority employee owned is critical for us. And I know it's critical for you. And I think that's one of the reasons why people want to continue to be owners of Barris is because you've made it thoughtful, you've made it affordable, and we still have a long way to go. Completely agreed. Well done. Thank you, Chaz. As we finish up, Stephanie, and I'm just really enjoyed talking with you again today, and I think hopefully our listeners will get a real sense of both the depth of your background and the kinds of issues that Varys and some others are facing today in this mainstream ESG and impact world. Give us a sense of how you think of Varys among many different types of competitors. And I think from where we sat, we weren't seeing or finding another ESG and impact-centric wealth management business that was a pure play, that was majority employee-owned and wanted to stay that way, importantly. There's all kinds of folks out there. There are family offices, there's other wealth management firms, tons of RIAs, financial institutions are making great strides here. How do you think about what distinguishes Varus when you're out and about talking with prospects and putting your brand out there? What do you want people to know and how do you want them to think? Well, we want people to know that impact investing in ESG is not a nice to have, but in our view, it's a necessity, which is why we've dedicated the entire firm to this. And this is more of a both an ethical and, and long-term kind of view towards the economic development of our children, grandchildren, and, and you know, our progeny, which is that basically the financial institutions as we know them today, the incentive structures, um, the lack of concern for the impact on people and planet, et cetera, is just unsustainable. And so we believe that everything we do, whether it's how we vote, what car we drive, what we eat, how we dress, what we wear, et cetera, and how, how we invest and how we act civically amongst our community, et cetera, is extremely important. And so we, we cannot divorce our, our investing from the real world. And I think psychologically, too many players in our space are just assuming that these good times will last and that business as usual is okay. And, and we were created to say, no, stop. We can't invest your money in a way that is responsible where you meet you meet or exceed uh, benchmark you know commercial benchmarks which we also consider extractive to some extent but we can outperform them and you know be completely aligned with your values and your ethics and your faith in some cases and so that is that's the Veris promise which is to really do away with the cognitive dissonance uh, of not not infusing your values and your faith and your beliefs in everything you do we really believe it has to be part of your wealth and part of your legacy. And so that's, that is our service to our clients. 
Well, clearly, we could not agree with you more. And that's one of the reasons that we're partnered with you. And it's taken a long time to get from those niche product providers to this more mainstream, not greenwashed, not negatively screened world where it does become intrinsic. Really looking forward to a very long uh, and hopefully prosperous road with you, but I think it'll be fun. And I want to thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. And thank you to the Rosemont team for being so supportive and already bringing so much intellectual capital to the table and helping us improve as a business. 